Greetings, everybody. This is CJ, and welcome back to the Dangerous History Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be doing a review and discussion of an oldie but a goodie when it comes to movies, and that is the 1992 feature film Unforgiven, directed by and starring Clint Eastwood, which just recently, in August of 2022, celebrated its 30-year release anniversary, and so I was able to track down and get on the Zoom for a while, my good internet buddy, hopefully one day I'll get to shake his hand in person, but longtime internet buddy and friend of the show, Joshua Perry of, well, formerly of the late lamented Dusty Den podcast. Yes, if you don't know, he used to do a podcast called The Dusty Den years ago that was mostly talking about books, both fiction and nonfiction, but also occasionally movies too. And back when his podcast was still active, he and I collaborated multiple times with crossover episodes and things. So anyway, when I realized near the end of August that it was the 30-year anniversary of the release of Unforgiven, I decided that I really wanted to do an episode about it, and it quickly occurred to me that my good buddy Josh Perry would be a good person to talk to about this movie, because like me, he's a big fan of westerns. But before I switch it over to our conversation... I do just want to say I'm continuing to be very busy behind the scenes, kind of dealing with still the transition on multiple levels to being a full-time podcaster and independent content creator. So I appreciate everybody's patience that, you know, my output has started to ramp up a little bit, but it's still not where it's going to be eventually. And also your patience as far as my fulfilling of the perks from the Indiegogo campaign. Now, I am going to start one of the types of perks with this episode, which is giving shout-outs to people who contributed at least $25 or more to the campaign and who selected, you know, a shout-out on an episode of the show as a perk. And I'll be doing those, I think, 20 at a time until I've run through all the list. And I'm doing it in the order in which they contributed. So not in, I'm not doing it in any sort of rank order by amount from smallest to biggest or anything like that. It's simply time from, you know, the first person to throw down 25 or more to the last person who did so while the Indiegogo campaign was running, which enabled me to purchase my freedom and start doing this as my full-time career. So thank you sincerely to everybody who contributed to the Indiegogo campaign, even those who gave less than $25. I do appreciate every contribution, great or small. But here are the names of the first 20 excellent individuals that threw down 25 bucks or more to my Indiegogo campaign. And I'm just going to go, you know, with first and last name as I see it there in Indiegogo. And, you know, there's a few people that contributed under what are obviously not real names. And in those cases, I will just read those as they appear. So. The first 20 awesome individuals to contribute 25 bucks or more to my Indiegogo campaign to make Dangerous History a full-time endeavor, which almost doubled its original goal in terms of funding, are as follows. Humongous thanks from me to Skyjumper, Skip Pacheco, Dan Taylor, Thomas Phillips, Andrew B., Paul Amodia, Christopher Hopkins, Dropset Waits, 
David Jeffries, Michael Plute, Henry Bingaman, Jeff Hansen, James Jenneman, Devin Close, James Landers, K.H. Miller, Steve Gasser, Andrew Castellano, Sherwood Smith, and Rod Hoff again. Thank all of you very, very much for helping me to buy my freedom and do this kind of stuff full-time going forward. And apologies if I messed up anybody's name in terms of pronunciation or what have you. But anyway, thank all of you very much. And now let's go ahead and get to my discussion with Josh Perry about the movie Unforgiven. You know, when I talk about movies and TV on this show, which I do from time to time, it's usually, especially in the last few years, about how most of the things coming out these days are crap. And I think still most of the things coming out these days are crap, with the occasional notable exception. But it was nice to talk about something, even though it's a movie 30 years old, but something that is just an excellent piece of cinema that reminds you that movies don't always have to suck. So, turning it over to the conversation I had with Josh Perry about Unforgiven. Um, going on a couple weeks ago, I got a little bit sidetracked in processing this episode, but I hope you enjoy, and take care, and I'll talk to you all again soon. Okay, so 30 years and one month ago tomorrow uh, was the initial release date of Unforgiven, if I'm not mistaken. So we missed the the uh, 30 year anniversary by a little bit, but I didn't realize it till near the end of August, and uh, you know we couldn't get a time until early September. But oh well, we can still talk about it. So. Unforgiven, 1992, directed by and starring Clint Eastwood, um, won Best Picture and a bunch of other Oscars that year. Um, Eastwood was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Al Pacino in Scent of a Woman. Uh, but let's see, uh, Gene Hackman did win for Best Supporting Actor, uh, deservedly so. Yeah, so initial thoughts um on unforgiven i know uh, you watched it sometime in the last week or so um was it your first time viewing it in a long time or had, had you watched it uh fairly recently 
it was it was the first time in a while um i i feel like this is one of those films that i watch every handful of years like probably every five years or something like that it just seems to i get the itch i get the urge to watch it obviously you know we've talked several times about um my love and our love of, of westerns and the archetypes the the figures that you you see in these kind of films and stories and i think that this is probably one that i would put up there although it's very different and almost anti some of the other kind of westerns that i like in a way and well i'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit but i put it up there with once upon a time in the west and some other true classics that that i really care about and love so to me this is like a true classic movie like this is one that's going to be around forever and something that people always talk about when they talk about westerns and it's just as good now when you watch it i think is the first the first time as it was 30 years ago it's just as powerful it's very got a very timeless quality to it yeah, I'm in the same boat with you as far as it's it's one of those movies that I rewatch every few years too. And you know, it had probably been been a couple of years since the last time I saw it when I rewatched it recently. Um, you know, it's I have a hard time ranking uh my favorite movies, like rank ordering them. And but it's definitely in my top five for sure. Um, you know, up there with things like, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood is probably the most recent movie that's in my top five. Um, let's see some, some very different, I have a very diverse top five. I've got, uh, yeah, yeah. um, I, I would say big trouble in little China is definitely in the top <laughs> five. Um, and, uh, one that might actually surprise some people, um, legend, the Ridley Scott film, uh, yeah, with Tom Cruise. Guy. Yeah, I, I think that one that one is very um underrated. But anyway. Ridley's um Ridley's unbelievable. There's there are scenes in his movie in his movies that are like incredible to me. The way he he's so, he's so visual, you know, with his his direction style and even when you watch like a lot of special features because you know I love Alien. Alien is a, a huge I'm a huge fan of that. I uh, am Blade Runner. And when you listen to the actors talk about working with Ridley Scott, like they all say they're like, he's very unconcerned with the acting and the being a micromanager of the actors. He's like, look, this is your job. He's like, you, you do your performance. I have a performance to do, which is putting, you know, the visuals up on the screen and stuff and making it look amazing and transporting the viewer to these worlds, which he does like nobody else does. I don't, I don't think so. I think Ridley Scott is amazing and he's definitely, he might be my favorite director really. Um, and everything he does. I, I like even, I don't care how many alien movies he does. They're, they're all, they are all good to me. <laughs> like I just, I like the way he does it. I like the way he tells a story. I like the way he paces a film. Uh, even if they're not all perfect, I think they're all really good. If Ridley Scott's name is on it, you can, you can, you're going to, it's pretty much going to be enjoyable. And it's sort of, you could say the same thing for, for Clint Eastwood. He doesn't have a lot of directorial credits, um, but for sure. And unforgiven. I mean, this was something, this was very much like a lot of my favorite films and I have trouble ranking them also, but a lot of them are kind of like auteur driven. And what I yeah. mean by that is they're very much a singular vision 
with other people bringing their best to the project. And I, Unforgiven is one of those. It's, it's Clint Eastwood starring yeah. direct, written, produced, like, you know, all the credits are him with other people share them as well, but he's the lead visionary. Like a lot of these great films. Yeah. I've seen most of the films that Eastwood has directed and, you know, some of them he's in and some of them he's not as an actor. Um, there's, there's a few I haven't, but um, yeah, this, this one's great. Um, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, a very different movie. He's not in that one. His, his daughter actually is, though. Um, that's, that's another movie. It's probably in my top 10. Um, Gran Torino, great movie. Yeah, that's really um, good. Oh, one that I, I rewatched recently uh, with one of my kids, and the first time I'd rewatched it in probably a decade, Million Dollar Baby. That is a, that is a really good movie, too. Yeah, it's kind of it's really powerful, moving movie, moving yeah. film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, haven't seen American Sniper. Don't have a, a huge desire to see American Sniper. But um, uh, what, what was the other one? Uh, the one about uh, Richard Jewell. That was a Eastwood directed one not too many years ago. That that one was pretty good too. Um, but anyway, so Unforgiven was written by a screenwriter named David Peoples. And um, I don't know if you know this, but David Peoples also was one of the writers on uh, Blade Runner. He was, so, yeah. Yeah, there's a, a Ridley Scott connection. And um, aside from this, um, some other stuff I haven't seen, but uh, among the ones I have seen that he wrote would be uh, 12 Monkeys and uh, Soldier, the Kurt Russell film from the late 90s, which I need to rewatch that one. I, I remember thinking it was pretty good and, and kind of uh, didn't get the attention it deserved um sort of some, some similarities to universal soldier but I, I think i remember thinking it was a better movie even though it was less uh fancy than universal soldier yeah. but people's um, yeah i think people's worked with a guy named uh, hampton fincher fancher i can't remember who the other writer was but yeah he was there were two of them i think that that ended up writing blade runner so yeah he's got he's got some credits in the industry yeah, yeah, and I, I just this morning, um, before I started uh, just uh, to be a masochist, uh, before I started watching some of uh, Amazon's Rings of Wokeness, I was watching uh, some of the special features. I've got the you know fancy DVD, you know two disc set of Unforgiven from like a decade ago, and you know watching some of the making of stuff and whatever. And um, they they had uh, people's you know talking about writing the film and whatever. It's very interesting. You could tell like he's he's a he's a really good, really good writer, just even by the way he, he kind of spoke um, about it and everything. But um, so, um, you know, spoilers for a movie of 30 years ago, right? I mean, uh, if, <laughs> if anybody listening to this hasn't seen it yet and really cares about a, a spoiling a 30 year old movie, like stop now and go watch it. Uh, and anybody listening, if you haven't watched Unforgiven, like just go watch it right away. It's, you know, one it's of the a greatest masterpiece. movies ever. Yeah. 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 So we're in, uh, I think it's supposed to be the 1880s and we're in big whiskey and right off the bat, I mean, this, this movie is very much a genre deconstructionist and it's, but it's genre deconstruction done in my opinion, right. And done well, and not done in the way that deconstruction is done these days with, with the woke cult and all that. Um, but right off the bat, you're starting off with a completely different you know, problem or dilemma than 
you get in just about any other Western, right? I mean, you've, you've got cowboys in a whorehouse, uh, and one of them starts attacking a whore for apparently, uh, laughing at his, uh, unimpressive manhood. So <laughs> right, right there. Like that's not the typical, you know, start of a John Wayne movie or something like that. Right. Right. Well, and even like the, uh, I tend to view this film as like I, in a very meta kind of way. Um, so I, to me, it's kind of a very self-aware Western. It's more than just the story. And I think that's very intentional that I don't think it's happenstance that that is the thing that sets the story in motion is that it's a whore laughing at a cowboy's, you know, genitalia <laughs> or small yeah. small wiener yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, be, to be a little more uh you know contemporary but it's i think that that is very intentional that that that's something that you typically associate with westerns is kind of like the machismo of the cowboy and the uh sort of masculinity and overdrive or, or whatever or something like that and that's what's kind of being called into question, like right in the very beginning is a, you know, a, a whore, like sort of intellectually attacking this cowboy. And it brings, it brings with it sort of this tidal wave of violence and, and these other themes. Uh, so I, I definitely think it's very much on purpose. They could have made the insult to anything, you know, but when you're making a decision like this, when you're writing a, a, a story or a film or, or anything, these are very conscious elements. It's, I don't think it's just as some arbitrary thing like, oh, okay, we got to get uh, this horde to insult the cowboy somehow. I think, I think it's very much more, there's more layers to it than that. Yeah. And, you know, the, the horror isn't like being malicious. She's, she's like kind of innocent, you know, in right. it. like she just uh, unselfconsciously laughs uh, supposedly. And, um, you know, she wasn't like trying to put the guy down in the way that, I mean, you can just imagine if they remade Un Unforgiven today, like how much they'd fuck it up, but you know, they'd probably have the horror <laughs> being like, like a really nasty, you know, uh, sort of typical, um, unlikable feminist, uh, character, uh, who's being mean deliberately and, you know, whatever. And then of course, uh, they wouldn't have, you know, men come in to, to get the bounty on the cowboy, they they would have the whores themselves. Um, probably she'd be a any, superhero. Yeah, yeah. Probably with like little <laughs> to no practice or training or whatever. All of a sudden, uh, the whores would be you know the greatest gunfighters of the West, and you know they they'd all be uh, checking all kinds of ethnic boxes and whatever. But yeah, um, so the the whores then band together and put together a bounty because. Um, the the sheriff of the town little bill played uh exquisitely by gene hackman who's just you know one of the greatest actors of all time does not sufficiently punish the uh the cowboys to the liking of the horse so they decide to take matters into their own hands and it's done realistically right instead of uh as they would today with like a feminist unforgiven um you know modern feminist un there's obviously feminist themes in unforgiven but i i think they're done well and, oh, yeah, and organically sure. and believably yeah. they're not done stupidly like they are today usually um, you know, un unlike today where they would have the, the whores suddenly become uh, gunfighters, they actually instead 
do something that's much more realistic, which is, well, let's pull together our, uh, our, our funds from the Johns and, uh, you know, hire someone who actually might be able to, uh, kill, kill a couple of cowboys. But, um, and, and I just want to say the, the movie, I mean, it's, it's fabulously written, fabulously to write, like everything about it is good. Uh, the soundtrack's great, but really what shines to me, other than the, the script and the story itself are the actors like every actor in the, in this film is just, you know, yeah. perfect. I mean, um, Francis Fisher plays uh, strawberry Alice. Who's yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if you want to talk about sort of like feminism done well, I right. think her character, just the screen prowess when she shares the screen with Gene Hagman and, and who plays little bill and they are, you know, she can stand toe to toe with him, you know, with this kind of authoritarian, like sheriff. She does, there is, she has a fearlessness quality to her. Uh, and I, I think that, like you said, it's extremely, it's very believable. And just the, the performance is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Even, you know, all, all, even all the little minor characters and things, um, are just, you know, perfect actors, uh, for the roles. Um, you know, obviously a huge name, but his part is relatively small in it. But, uh, Peter O'Toole is English Bob. Oh, um, yeah. Is just, you know, he's great. And, um, I forget the name of the guy who plays, what is it? Uh, Peter O'Toole? Is he English Bob? Uh, I think so. I think it's Richard Harris. Oh yeah, 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 Duh. yeah. Brain fart. Um, yeah, yeah. Richard Harris. That's it. Um, yeah, yeah. I was, I was picturing in my head too, but just uh, threw out the wrong uh, old English guy. So um, yeah, it's Richard Harris, and then okay. obviously, like you said, Morgan Freeman is Ned. Yeah, He's yeah. The, the best friend of of Clint Eastwood, who's who's William Money. Right. Yeah, and um, the the actor. What's the character actor who plays uh, Beauchamp, the writer? Um, Saul Rubinek. Saul yeah, Rubinek. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Great, great character actor. Um, does it does a great job uh, as the the writer who at first is accompanying English Bob until English Bob gets the shit kicked out of him uh, by by Little Bill. But um, to me, to me, Beauchamp is actually a very important character. And the, the meta kind of way that I view the film, he kind of is the audience. He is like the representation of the audience. And at first he has these very idealistic um, views of what the West should be and what the cowboy or the bounty hunter should be and what violence in the West should be. And his view is almost sort of like a naive love uh the way that we like john wayne movies or other clint eastwood movies or things like that it's like this idealized version of the west and he very quickly kind of gets an education um of the reality of violence and the reality of who these characters are and the reality of how this system works and it kind of changes his view he goes through a little bit of a change sort of like the audience does when they go from watching you know like a john wayne film to something like this but in the end, he does sort of get what he wants. You know, he get he does have that glimpse of 
all right, this is what I've been waiting for. And I think it's a commentary on, on the Western audience, which is like, yeah, we love sort of this deconstruction that Unforgiven is given is giving us. And it's very interesting to explore these realities and this kind of clunkiness, this clunky violence that it, that it portrays. But we still do love these archetypes. We still do love the man with no name, you know? And, and so to me, he kind of represents like the, the evolution the viewer is supposed to be going through with viewing this as a little different than a contemporary Western, but still with a love of what brings you to the genre. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that, you know, the everybody involved in, in making the film, I think really does love Westerns. And so, you know, to me, when you're doing a genre deconstructionist sort of a, a story, whether it's a film or a book or whatever, the whoever's making the story or making the film has to love the genre that they're deconstructing. They they have to really like know it and love it for it to for it to work. Um, because when like you look at the way a lot of the the wokeistas do deconstruction they have contempt for what they're deconstructing whether it's a genre or a character or a franchise or you know a cinematic universe or whatever um they typically have contempt for it and it comes through in in the film or in the show and so it, it it's just to me it's just not not enjoyable not watchable not interesting in the way that something like Unforgiven is where you can clearly tell everybody involved with making it loves Westerns and yet is still doing this, you know, revisionist deconstructionist take. Um, and they're able to do it in a way that, that works. And that, like you were saying, fans of Westerns and I am one and you are one, you know, I can appreciate even some of the, you know, like, like fifties Westerns, you know, and, and some of those are, are, some of those are a little bit more, you know, morally ambiguous and complicated than others, but even the ones that are really simplistic, like I can still appreciate them for what they are. And Absolutely. yet I can also appreciate Unforgiven and I can, you know, I can go back and forth between watching like a typical Western or, or watching something more revisionist if it's done well. But, you know, I can't watch some of the revisionist Westerns they do uh, in more recent years where they're shoving wokeism and all that stuff into it. And again, part of it's that I'm I'm sick of woke ideology and never really liked it to begin with. And it's really, you know, getting old at this point, but also um, it, it's, I, I think that the people who make those, those sorts of deconstructions, they, they hate the genre that they're, they're trying to reimagine. Yeah. And look, to the point of loving Westerns, uh, Toby Hooper, who we both admire as a director and uh, you know somebody who's involved in the horror industry, because we people who have listened to us talk before know that we love horror films, especially classic horror films. And he had made a point in some interview that I saw or was watching about how closely related Westerns and horror films are and how they give you the freedom and they give the the auteur the freedom to create these parables and experiment and tell different stories because a lot of a lot of people who would you know protest this in the industry or anything like this you kind of write them off as just a genre film you know it, that it's not it doesn't have much important to say okay 
you know, you're doing Cowboys and Indians or whatever, you know, so it's, it's a Western film. Yeah. We'll get these, these actors or whatever, but then it gives you the, the freedom because it's sort of written off as an unimportant non-drama piece, uh, which it's quite the opposite. You know, it's very dramatic, but it gives, it gives the author the freedom to insert all these themes and do all these, these interesting things. And I love whether it's the simplest of like John Wayne films to like a sort of like a neo noir kind of Western, like dead man with Johnny Depp to, which I think is brilliant um, to something like this, which I think is you know, just a dramatic masterpiece. I love the entire genre. I think it's one of the best and most fun genres that can also mix in a lot of these interesting questions and insights, just like horror films. Yeah, and it's it's arguably too like the most uh I don't know, the the, the greatest American genre. You know, yeah. um may, maybe second would be would be sort of like the so something that in some ways is is closely related to it in in the storytelling and archetype sort of ways, but like the um you know, hard-boiled yeah, noir, noir crime, crime genre. Yeah, yeah. 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 Absolutely. And those are great too. You know, those are great too. There is something it ha I think a lot of it has to do with our view and sort of Western society. We're very like protagonist driven as far as our love of the story, you know? So whether you, whether it's a man with no name in a Clint Eastwood Western or it's a hard-boiled detective. They share a lot of the same characteristics and a, a lot of the same motives and a lot of the same moral values. And we've talked about this before. Uh, I forget what conversation we had. We did a podcast where we were, I think we were talking about uh, a novel. We were talking about, uh, we interviewed the author as well. Oh, uh, yeah. Santiago with uh, Santiago. Yeah. Yeah. By, by Mike Resnick. That's right. And we were discussing this actual thing like this, the qualities and the, and the moral choices that the protagonists that American audiences tend to love. And I think William Money in this is uh, a good example of that, but also, uh, again, a little bit of a deconstruction, right? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, every little thing about it is um, is you know turning typical Western tropes on its head, right? Down to things like Clint Eastwood, you know, M w William Money. He keeps getting thrown off his horse. Like he he can't even you know he can't even seem to ride his horse properly. But it's not it's not done in like a, a way where it's you know for yucks or whatever. It's it's like no, this is realistic. This guy. Uh, has a horse who kind of sucks, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I, the first time we see him, uh, he's like literally covered in pig shit. You know, he's, he's yeah. not like riding into town, looking all sporty in a, in a cool Western outfit, you know, um, looking like the badass alpha gunfighter, you know, he's, he's like literally rolling in shit cause he's trying to deal with sick pigs or whatever. So, and then of course we get, uh, Schofield kid who I, I, f I forget the name of that actor. I don't think he's been in too much that I can think of, but um, again, he's, he's great in that role, you know, where 
he's James James Wolvet. Okay. I can't remember. Um, I'm sure he's been in other stuff, but I I can't recall off the top of my head what else he might have been in. He was in. Um, I think he was in. Uh, oh man, what? A, there's one. There's another kind of. He was in Dead Presidents. Uh, in I can't remember what else he was in, but there's there. Yeah, there is a few. There's one that's on the back of my mind, but. Uh, I'm sure I'll remember in five minutes when <laughs> we're on to a different topic. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's he's just so great as, you know, this uh, young, hot-headed uh, kid with a big mouth and whatever. Um, and I, I love the arc he goes through where, you know, he starts off, he's, he's all aggressive, he's a hothead, he's even, you know, talking shit uh, to Will and Ned. Um, bragging about how many men he's killed and whatever, and then I mean, you know, first off, we we find out he can't see for shit. Um, but then, that, isn't that interesting? That like, what is his problem? What is exactly. the, the handicap that they give him is that he can't see, right? I yep. and that again, this is not an arbitrary choice. It's that he he cannot see this world for what it really is. He it, this is another kind of nod to the audience, you know. It, his he represents the idealistic i want to be a fast gunslinger and i want to be a bounty hunter and all this stuff but he can't see things for what they actually are until he can right later in the film yeah i mean when he when he finally does kill someone um that it's it's such a great scene that that scene in the aftermath of that where you know, he's talking to Will and they have that. I mean, the the dialogue in this movie is just so, so well done. Yeah. Where he's he's talking about and he finally comes clean and admits he's never killed anyone before. And, you know, you can just really see him. He's sort of going back and forth. He's like, well, they had it coming. But then he's, you know, um, he, he's kind of going back and forth, like in real time in front of you over like how he feels about it. On the one hand, he's trying to play it off like, oh, you know, those guys deserve it, whatever. At the same time, like he's clearly disturbed by it and i i just love the arc that he goes through when he eventually he just you know hands clint eastwood his, his gun and says i don't want it anymore yeah he doesn't want to see he said he says he doesn't care about the glasses anymore because one of the reasons he's joining them is so he can get money for fancy clothes or fancy or, or some new glasses and things like this and uh he says you know he's like at the end he's like i don't want the money i don't care about the glasses or anything like that anymore um after he does get a glimpse of what the reality of killing another human being is he says i don't i want you know i want to return to my blindness you know basically um and i think that he's that's an extremely powerful message and probably i think the most explicit message in the film is the uh, and there's a there's a scene I want to talk about as far as far as this theme is, which is the true nature of violence versus the Hollywood version of violence, which I think is one of the meta deconstructions in the film. And little Bill talks a little bit about it in the jail to the audience, to Mr. Beauchamp, right? When he's talking about how you have to take your time when you're in a gunfight and you have to that being fast is no he says it doesn't hurt any right to be fast but it's no measure for being able to take your time and having 
cold blood and an iron will and the ability to hold steady and and aim and take out your target and it's very a very uh, polarizing view compared to what the traditional western has you believe which is you you know quick draw shoot from the hip great music you know triumphant music is playing you jump on your horse and all the violence in this film is very different than that it's very realistic it's extremely brutal even the scene when the cowboy is slowly dying and they let him take a drink and stuff like that after they shoot him i'm sure you'll talk a little bit about that um but it's a to me this is the central theme of the film which is what violence really is compared to what it is traditionally displayed as in a in a rubber stamp western yeah yeah i mean a lot of those those older westerns they don't even show blood you know like people get shot uh in the chest with a rifle and like there's no blood you know they just (laughs) sort of like keel over uh, nice and neat you know Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate any movie that depicts violence in a in a realistic fashion, whether it's, you know, gunfights or whether it's, you know, hand to hand or whatever, um, even when it's disturbing. And, and I and it's not primarily like that. I'm some sort of sadist or whatever. It, it, it's a more it's a more complicated sort of feeling. But you know, war movies that depict war realistically movies that depict, you know, physical hand-to-hand fights in a, in a realistic fashion. I don't know. I I just, I always appreciate it. You know, when, when you see like a fight scene in a movie that, that is like a fight that you would actually see on the street. Yeah. That, that it's, uh, it, it, it's chaotic. It's, it's ugly. Uh, it's, it's messy. It's undignified. I mean, that was one of those things that like the world finally started to realize when things like the UFC became popular is like, and and that's not even anywhere near, you know, the chaos and ugliness of a street fight. That's still in a controlled environment with only two opponents and no, no weapons or whatever. And there's a ref to stop it if it gets too bad or whatever. Um, but even so you look at that and, you know, people who didn't understand real fighting were like, well, it looks like those two guys are just gay. They're in there just, you know, rubbing on each other. It's like, <laughs> yeah, have you ever actually seen what most, you know, street fights and bar fights actually turn into? Um, there's there's usually not a whole lot of punches and kicks thrown until they're they're, you know, scrambling around on the ground and, and whatever like that. But yeah, I don't know. I, I I just have always really appreciated that. And I have a hard time with with so many Hollywood movies uh that you know, or action movies when it, when it's just so ridiculously unrealistic, you know? So, I mean, sometimes it makes sense, like in, in the matrix or whatever, obviously it makes sense to have these, these crazy, you know, matrixy uh, fight scenes. Cause it, it makes sense in story. Right. But when it's supposed to be like a real fight in the real world and it looks like, you know, matrix mixed with ballet or something like that. Uh, it's, yeah. it's just, it's, it's so tensionless and whatever. Whereas like you see, you know, I, I think about like, for example, uh, in The Sopranos, when uh, when Tony Soprano kills um, what's his name, that guy who was in The Fugitive, uh, the fight they it's brutal, it's brutal. Um, yeah. When when they they fight and eventually Tony manages to kill him. It's not, and this is, um, I think I had mentioned to you when we when we were emailing and talking about 
doing this podcast talking about the uh, Unforgiven that and this is kind of a tangent I don't want to go off on because it's such a huge topic in itself but this I think this was very much like a David Lynch idea with the the TV series Twin Peaks uh it's really even though it's like a kind of a quirky old series and a lot you know a lot of people that's their the way they would describe this quirky and, and weird but the violence in it and the subject matter in it is just gut-wrenching they would never show anything like that on network tv now like the 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 kind of the, the themes and, or the amount of violence that they showed with s- certain scenes there and i think that was very much in his mind during a time when when other tv shows did kind of have this attitude towards violence where characters were just sort of easily dispensable for the sake of the story or, or, you know, it was easy to kill someone, you know, like kind of it, like, like it is in a movie, you know, what's a, what's a great Western where you could probably view violence a little different it would be like tombstone. All right. That's one where the, the life of a, of a supporting character isn't quite as valuable. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're watching that movie, you have a lot of kind of throwaway characters. It's a great movie and I love it. And it's so quotable, but it's a completely different animal than something like this, where it really is not going to shield you from the pornography of violence. Like it's, it wants you to, it wants it to hit you in the face a little bit and realize the kind of hellish atmosphere uh, that, that these characters were living in. Yeah, um, sort of a, a, a random thing, but I, I just remembered um, something that I hadn't noticed about Unforgiven until I, w- I was reading some stuff online about it and I came across this, that there's certain elements of the story that are somewhat based on uh, the Iliad, which I, I hadn't, I'm I'm usually pretty good at spotting when you know, when, when things from Homer or things from Shakespeare or, or biblical stories or whatever are, you know, partially mixed in with like a, like I, I, I right away spotted that Sons of Anarchy was very, you know, uh, based on the story structure of uh, Hamlet. Like I, I, I saw that for what it was like the first episode, you know, before people started, uh, you know, talking about it and whatever. Um, I'm usually pretty good at that kind of thing. You know, when a, when a story is has elements of the Odyssey or the elements of, you know, some Shakespeare story or whatever. But um, I hadn't realized that there are certain aspects of the Iliad in Unforgiven. Now, obviously, not a ton. It's, you know, it's a Western. It's not a war movie. But um, and I forget all, all the ones that uh, that I, I think it was even on, on the Wikipedia page for for Unforgiven. But things like, for example, um, in the Iliad. There's the part where Achilles doesn't want to fight and he's like staying in, in camp and refusing to go. And mm, yeah. he, he doesn't until he finds out that his, uh, what was it? His cousin or his best friend or whatever. Um, I forget, I forget the character's name. Uh, was it something, something like a, like a Greek version of Patrick or something, I think. Patrocles. Uh, yeah, there we go. That you know, he had gone out there in in Achilles' uh, armor, and, and then, yeah, and then got killed um, by Hector. And 
that you know that's that's very similar structurally to what happens when when Ned gets killed by little Bill, and then you know Will Money picks up the bottle for the first time in the entire movie. He picks up the bottle, and that's when you realize like, oh shit's going to go down. Um, but yeah, but that's yeah. a, there were there were some other other ways that structurally there were some you know Iliad type elements uh, in Unforgiven. But what it made me think of, and and I've been meaning to reread the Iliad. Um, it's probably been close to 20 years since I read it last, but one of the things I remember from the Iliad and, and I actually, we read the Iliad and talked about it in, of all things, um, a, a political thought class that I took at Flagler college, really, really good, a political science professor who's still there, um, named, named, uh, Arthur Vandenhouten. And he does political thought back then he did intro to political thought in two parts and some of it's stuff you would expect, like, you know, you, you read um, Aristotle uh, and Plato's Republic. And, you know, later on, you eventually get to like Machiavelli and some of these other like Enlightenment era guys. But um, and the first half, I think, is like ancient. And then the second half is modern. And I forget if if medieval was put into part one or part two. But, you know, we, we read Aquinas. We read we even read uh, Luther and Calvin, uh, some of the stuff they they wrote that had political implications. But some of the stuff that we read are things that you might not normally think of you'd be, that you'd be reading in an intro to political thought class. And one of them was the Iliad. Mm. And one of the things that, that I remember, and he, he runs very good discussion seminar. Most of his classes are, are discussion seminars, even like the intro classes. He runs his discussion seminars, very unusual um, for an undergrad professor. But um, one of the things I, I remember uh, the class I was in discussing a lot about the Iliad was the way that violence is depicted in the Iliad uh, changes over the course of the story where I think earlier in, in the, the book, the violence is depicted more kind of like uh, romantically more kind of like sexy or whatever like that. It's It's sort of more stylized, more like a typical Hollywood action movie. And then as the story goes on, the violence gets uglier, like right on down to the, the, the word choices uh, by Homer and, and the imagery and things like this, where, and it, it's, it's sort of like, again, you're, you're taking the reader on a, a journey of, you know, you, you start off, start off with the violence being somewhat sanitized and stylized and everything like that. And then you get uh, disabused of those fantasies right. as the story goes on, the violence gets more ugly uh, in, in a way more, more realistic. So. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, that's the central, that's the central theme. And it's interesting that, that it is tied in. Uh, that's an interesting tie in with the, with the Iliad. And I really hadn't thought about that either. The, I think there's a few scenes that specifically depict what we're talking about here. And the, I would say the first one that really, really shows it well is when they shoot the cowboy. I think it's a, yeah, it's, it's Will Money that ends up shooting him. And the, they kind of show the agony, the kind of the slow death of the cowboy. And they let him take a drink of water. They say, we're not going to shoot you. You can go get some water. And, and you hear him sort of crying out because they're, they shoot him with a rifle from a little bit of a distance. Yeah. Ned shoots him and just like 
hits him in the gut or something. Right, right. Is it Ned? Yeah, Ned Ned makes the first shot, but then he's disturbed. And, and he gives is, the gun is, to, to Will Money. Yeah, yeah. He's he's, you know, not not willing, not able to uh to finish him off. So yeah. And actually, um, in the little making of that I was watching this morning, Morgan Freeman said that in his mind he thought of ned as a character like in in terms of you know as good actors should like he put a lot of thought into you know ned's potential backstory and all that sort of stuff and he said that in his mind he always thought of ned as not really being like the real killer that he's basically the guy who watches wills back like back back when they were younger and you know uh being outlaws and gunfighters and whatever that that Ned wasn't really the killer. He's just the friend and the back watcher. And Will was like the real killer. So, yeah. And then, and then you also get allusions to this theme where, when there's a scene where uh, Will money, where Clint Eastwood is talking about some of the things he had done in the past about, and you know, he's like, that, that guy didn't deserve that. He talks about shooting a guy in the face, I think at close range. Then you have this scene in the jail that we talked about where little Bill is describing what a gunfight is actually like to Mr. Beauchamp and that it's, it's funny that Mr. Beauchamp was sort of like writing comics or these sort of like dime store kind of stories. Um, and that's what his view of the West is. And Gene Hammond kind of cures him, cures him of that. Then you obviously get the ending, you know, which is, uh got some great lines in it and it's a very slow and shows kind of the goofy clunkiness of real violence uh with the gunfight in the saloon and then you get the very dramatic up close and personal dispatching of, of little bill uh by will money in a in a way that like you said it's in it, of course it's after he he picks up the bottle it's after, you know, all this sort of character arc is kind of almost complete at the end up into the, the epilogue, which I think is the, the end end, um, quite literally of the character arc. And we'll talk a little bit about that later, I'm sure. Uh, Cause that's, I think a different theme is, is Will's arc, but those, those three or four scenes in, in particular are very focused around what violence is more like really you know of course it's still a film it's still a movie there's still elements of act you know dramatization but even mr beauchamp after after will money takes out all these people in the saloon you know like four or five gunfighters or whatever it is he even says he comes up to him and he tries to analyze it right he's like oh i've read that a superior gunfighter will always take out the best enemy first and then whatever and then Will Money is like, no, I've always been lucky in my killing. You know, he he's like, all I, and I he's like, I can't tell you who was first. All I can tell you is who's going to be last. And then Mr. Yeah. Beauchamp gets out of there, you know, kind of a warning to him, you know, like, listen, I'm not here for the glory. I'm not here to talk about it. I'm here. to I'm here to kill and take revenge uh, for for the killing of, of my friend Ned. And as he even says that explicitly, he's like. Uh, you know, I'm here to kill you, little Bill, because you killed my friend Ned. You yeah. know, and that's what it's about to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I love pretty much every scene in this movie, but yeah, that uh, the, the the climax there, um, 
you know, the really the only real gunfight in the whole thing. Cause I mean, even when they shoot the one cowboy, it's done at long range with a rifle and, you know, it's not really like a gunfight per se. Um, yeah. So it's an assassin assassination of sorts. Like, and that's what, yeah. that's what uh, Gene Hagman even calls Will money or, or little Billy even calls what he calls them an, an assassin. Right. And that's how he refers to them. Because I think that's very much, that's very true to what the bounty hunter probably was, right? They weren't the type of person that was going to unnecessarily put themselves in harm's way and say, hey, let's go out in the street and have a duel. I'm here to get the reward. It was like a, no, if I can kill you and get the bounty without putting myself in extreme danger, well, that's the smart thing to do. Um, so it wasn't, though we love this idealized version of the bounty hunter, right? Like that's sort of, there's probably a little less nobility in it uh, than than portrayed in certain films. And th- this film shows that and through the way little Bill talks about assassins, his hatred of bounty hunters and kind of the, fi- the way the film gives you the backstory without really showing you of the real kind of son of a bitch that will money was, you know, like he, he even, he talks about it himself. He makes no allusions to the fact that he was a rotten, terrible, evil human being as an assassin or as a bounty hunter. And then it was only his wife who was, who's passed away in the film that cured him of that cured him of his drinking cured him of, you know, his philanderous ways and, and, and his killing people and all this stuff and, and made an honest man out of him. It was only love that did that. Uh, but the opposite of that is, is everything that he was before. Yeah. And that comes out again after Ned gets killed. I, I always loved uh, the line when will money walks into the saloon at the climax and the first thing he does is he kills the saloon keeper uh which is interesting and he he kills him and then i i love uh, little bill says you know calls him a coward or whatever and says you just shot an unarmed an unarmed man and i love the response he should have armed himself you know um i even when I was a kid and I first saw that, like that line, I was like, you know, yeah. there, there was just, there's just something about it where, you know, and, he, and then he says, you know, he should have armed himself if, if he wants to decorate his saloon with my friend. Um, but oh, yeah. Cause they've got net out front in the coffin as a warning to other bounty hunters who might be coming for the reward that, that the prostitutes have, have put up. And I, that my favorite line from the film is in the same scene is the very end is the last thing he says. Um, and I, I, I repeat it around the house all the time. Like, it's funny if we're complaining about something or, or my wife says like, Oh, you don't deserve that. I always say, I say deserve ain't got nothing to do with it. Yep. Um, yep. that's, and, that's and my that's favorite line. line in the film too, actually. And it's, yeah, I've, it's such a great one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, and, and it has, it ties into the whole theme of, of the reality of violence and also just the reality of life, you know, because, yeah, I mean, wonderful people, you know, get killed in tragic circumstances and uh, assholes live to be 100 sometimes. And, you know, it, it's a certain amount of it is just chaos and statistics, yeah. even, out, even outside the realm of violence. You know, I mean, uh, good people who, who didn't do anything to bring it on still get cancer, you know, 
Um, it's not just people like who smoke and get lung cancer. You could say, well, you know, they maybe they don't deserve that, but at least they kind of did to some degree bring it on themselves. But then there's people who, you know, live a fairly healthy life and whatever, and just randomly get cancer somewhere. And that's it. People, you know, just driving down the street and the cement truck crosses the, crosses the yellow line and that's it. Um, yeah. So yeah. Deserves got nothing to do with it. Even, even in that scene, the, it's so clumsy, all the gunfighting. Um, it's very slow for a, for a fast gunfight. People are missing. They're panicking. Um, all these people who are ready. There's like the one character who has like all kinds of guns that he says, all like, he says something earlier in the film, like, um, I don't want to get killed for the, for lack of shooting back. Right. Um, but even you see and him he's the one armed, scene. he's the one armed character too um and he's got he, he has extra guns and yeah i think the other deputy is like you only got one arm how come you got you know extra guns and he says yeah i don't want to get killed for lack of shooting back but it's it's funny how like then later on like it's it's very much what little bill was describing in the jail scene with mr Beauchamp. he was you know will money was being calculated and careful and sort of taking his time with his killing and uh the other guys no matter how many guns they prepared themselves with right they were panicking they weren't really ready to face that reality of you know life and death and it was sort of will money's lack of morality and the fact that he was sort of almost like a machine in that way where life and death meant nothing to him at that point, you know, because deserving got nothing to do with it. You know, there was no morality clouding his ability to do the killing. Uh, no, his, there were no nerves. There was nothing like that, that you see in characters uh, like the Schofield kid, or that you see in these other small characters uh, that were associated with, with little bill that were helping him in the saloon. And the only other real takeaway from that scene that I had going back to the horrors of the prostitutes was kind of like they, they wanted to shield their eyes from it. Right. When he came in, when he came into the saloon where they, they had all been kind of upstairs watching little bill give this big speech about how they're going to go find all the assassins and they're going to take them out. And they're going to hunt down Will Money because they thought he was gone after they killed Ned. They thought he he had he was running away and he was going out of town, and they didn't expect him to be coming back into town to take care of business. So they were kind of watching and just listening to to all this going on downstairs in the saloon. But as soon as they saw Clint Eastwood come in, as soon as they saw Will Money come in, they kind of they knew that almost like he was the Grim Reaper, right? They knew death was there so they left they didn't want to see it except you know i think one of them kind of stayed and uh kind of watched through her hands you know peeking through her fingers or something like this but i thought that was a very interesting dynamic to show the reality of of violence how clumsy it was um, but also how final it was you know uh gene hackman says little, little bill says I was building a house. You know, that's the last thing he says, which is kind of a, a there's a bit of a gag in the movie. He wasn't doing a very job, good job building the house because it was leaking during a rainstorm. But 
he's like, I that's when he said, I don't deserve this. You know, he was like, uh, he felt like he was a good man. He felt like he was doing the right things. He felt like he was a servant of the law. He had this thing left to accomplish that he wanted to, he wanted to finish building his house and he felt like he didn't deserve it. So even he had a sort of idealized view of the moralities of, of the West and, and, and violence. And it was only Will Money that really understood what it was because he was the killer. And he says, hey, you know, deserve ain't got nothing to do with it. Your life isn't any more protected than, you know, the Cowboys that we shot earlier or mine or Ned's or anyone else's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and, you know, one more thing that I always appreciated about that that uh, climactic confrontation there is that and it's another illustration of like the chaos and randomness of violence where after uh, Eastwood takes out the saloon keeper, he's, he's got a double barrel shotgun when he walks in and, you know, he fires one barrel into the saloon keeper. And then, you know, he talks a little bit with, uh, with little bill, but he's pointing the shotgun at little bill. And then he initially, you know, tries to take out little bill with the other barrel of the shotgun and there's a misfire. And of course, that's when little Bill says, kill the son of a bitch. But, you know, A, the fact that, yeah, misfires could happen, especially with, you know, the sorts of uh, gunpowder back then. And then the fact that when when the gun misfires, Will Money improvises very quickly, which, you know, people who who are successful in, in fights, whether they're gunfights or hand to hand, usually a big part of it is just the ability to improvise faster than the other guy, the ability to, to respond uh, to the situation faster than the other guy. And he throws the shotgun. He, like, you know, this is, this is like the cliche of like old Superman shows, right? Where the bank robber empties his, his revolver into Superman and then throws the gun at him. You're like, come on, the bullets didn't hurt him. But if you just chuck your, your revolver, it's going to, it's going to take him out. Um, but, you know, in this case, it actually makes sense. It's actually like the smartest thing he could have done there. Uh, and he throws the shotgun at little Bill and, and ducks. As, as he does, he throws and ducks and then, you know, pulls out his, his six gun. And so Lil Bill misses him because, A, the shotgun is getting thrown at him. And, and B, um, you know, Will Money is like ducking as he's throwing the shotgun. And I don't know, just, just that little detail is the sort of thing I appreciate in a realistic fight scene where it's like, yeah, it's chaotic. Um, you know, things go wrong. They don't go to according to plan. Very often the person who who wins is just the person uh, that that reacts quicker to to the changing situation, but you know it always makes me think of the old uh, Mike Tyson line: "Everyone's got a plan going into a fight till they get punched in the face." So yeah. I don't know, just just that little detail of, of the shotgun misfires and then he responds by throwing it instead. I just, that that just always stuck out to me, even when I was a kid watching this. I was like, "Oh, that seems like something that might actually happen in real life." You know, what do you make of the the treatment or? I guess the the difference between the character of English Bob and Little Bill, because Mr. Beauchamp, as we talked about before, is with English Bob and kind of he's there to kind of be his biographer in a way. He's writing all these stories about him because he is the quintessential dead eye, quick draw gunfighter. He kind of represents that version of um the old west or the bounty hunter or whatever and little bill takes care like he 
beats the crap out of English Bob and then kind of turns Mr. Beauchamp against him. And then Mr. Beauchamp starts being more buddy buddy with little Bill instead of English Bob. I, I kind of, I have a few different ways of looking at that, but it is interesting that this more Hollywood version of the basic gunfighter gets beat up by this little Bill character who's kind of the messenger of what violence really is and, and how uh, the West really works. And then he's just sort of kicked out of town and he kind of disappears from the film altogether. He doesn't come back into the picture at all. So I got, I kind of view it in that meta way of like, Hey, this is a film about real violence and I'm kicking, I'm kicking out this version of fake violence uh, of the story, but that might be a bridge too far, but that's sort of how I viewed the, the, the reason English Bob is in there. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense. It's, it's just another way that they could, uh, in a good way, subvert your expectations, right. Uh, and, and deconstruct things And you know, it, it's, I mean, throughout the film, there's just constant, you know, of, of taking, taking a Western trope and then putting it on its head. Right. I mean, um, that definitely is part of it uh, or an example of it. Another is even just uh, little bill himself. When you watch this movie for the first time, I think a lot of people would assume, and maybe not if they, you know, saw that Clint Eastwood's name was first in the list of actors or whatever. But I think a lot of people, if they were just going into this movie blank slate, knew nothing about it and started to watch it. I think in, in the first few scenes, they would have, they would assume that little bill is going to be the protagonist because he's the, the sort of character that in, you know, most Westerns it's, it's the sheriff, right? It's the marshal, right. whatever, who is the protagonist. And, um, you know, at least initially he seems like a quote unquote good guy. Now, eventually or pretty quickly you realize he's not, but anyway, I, I just think that that's, a, that's another example too, is, is just the, the introduction of him and then how he's kind of spun. And, and yet at the same time, like, you know, another great thing about this movie that's missing from so many recent movies is the degree of of ambiguity like there right there really are no good guys other than maybe ned um and, and even he does shoot shoot the young cowboy but right. you know i mean will bunny is not a good guy but little bill certainly isn't either um everybody well, even, is, even the prostitutes aren't aren't up 100 percent. granted they're justified i would i would argue and they're offering of the thousand dollar bounty, but they get, there's an interesting dialogue between uh, Alice and little bill where he says, do you, do you realize what offering this bounty is going to do? It's got, it's not going to bring anything but violence and destruction of this town kind of thing. Uh, so even they are not above reproach for kind of the invitation of violence. He's like, is this what you want? You want more death? Now I have a bit more sympathy towards their plight. And, but I do, there are scenes that really make you question, is Little Bill a bad guy? That's a great question on its face. I mean, he's just a guy, kind of, who happens to be a sheriff, who has some interesting qualities who you might 
you, that you might think are good qualities. And definitely there's some bad stuff in there too. But he's just sort of a product more than he is a, a story driver. He's kind of a product of the situation and of the time. I don't think, I think he do. I think he does want like a peaceful town. And I think he, I don't think he wants to rule as some sort of tyrant. I don't really view him as that kind of a character, but he is the antagonist. I mean, he is kind of like the bad guy in a way. It yeah, is very in, in a way that the Cowboys certainly are not. Um, right. you know, the, the Cowboys are, are not any sort of a, a threat to, you know, our, our trio of, of bounty hunters and, and little bill, in, interestingly, he's a gun controller, so that that's that's kind of interesting considering you know uh, Eastwood's uh, conservatarian leanings. That the antagonist is, among other things, a, a, a gun control as much of a gun controller as you can be uh, in the context of the American Old West. And right. the to me, what's interesting about one of the interesting things about Little Bill is he is a figure who seems to prize order over justice. He he wants order, not not justice. Correct. That's a very so, very good uh, way to describe him. Yeah, I like that. And and you see it right off the bat where, um, you know, he the the way he deals with the the cowboy who who cut up uh, the prostitute, he initially is going to whip him, and then he doesn't, and then he simply you know orders them to to compensate the owner uh, of of the whorehouse and saloon with with horses so like it's it's not it, it it's more of like the kind of justice that like i don't know ancient germanic tribes would have like where if you murdered somebody uh you could potentially just like pay off their their relatives you know and and that would be that and it was more about just trying to keep things orderly and prevent you know uh things from escalating and getting out of hand like that's that's what ultimately what little bill his number one priority is order and that's why he doesn't like you know the idea of bounty hunters coming in and trying to you know get get uh you know take the law into their own hands in a way and um a very interesting thing that i caught on the the making of featurette that i watched this morning uh gene hackman said that clint eastwood told him to base uh, the character of Little Bill, his portrayal of Little Bill, on a real-life uh, hardcore chief of police. And that was a guy named Daryl Gates, who I had heard of in books like um, Rise of the Warrior Cop by Radley Balco. Daryl Gates was the L.A. chief of police for, like, I think most of the second half of the 20th century, practically. And he was the guy who turned the LA police department into what we think of in terms of like, you know, the, the department that, that uh, brings you the Rodney King beating and all that stuff. And he was the guy who presided over really, it was the first, as far as I know, the first big militarization of an American non-federal law enforcement agency was what, you know, the the real beginning, like in, in the starting in the Vietnam era of militarizing American law enforcement, Daryl Gates was like the guy. Um, he's the guy who who presided over militarizing the L.A. Police Department, uh, creating the first modern SWAT team, and just in general inculcating that like really over the top, excessive uh, style of policing that that we often associate with 
LA cops, particularly in the late 20th century. And so I thought that was just absolutely fascinating. A, that at least in part, that's, you know, what the character of Little Bill was based on. And, and I don't know, um, I don't think Peoples himself said anything one way or the other of that. So I don't know if, if uh, David Peoples was thinking of that when he wrote it. But Eastwood as the director certainly was because he he told Gene Hackman, yeah, here's a here's a real life guy uh, that you can you can look at for like what little Bill is supposed to be. He's just like an overzealous law and order, you know, extremist, a police extremist. Wow, that's that's definitely I can see that now that you're saying that, especially with the the points you were talking about with, the, you know, order over justice kind of thing. Uh, that's very interesting. That that's that the perfect way to describe him really is you know order trumps justice because even in the conversation he has with Alice where she's like this isn't fair when he first says okay well, you're just gonna have to pay the bar owner or whatever because technically the the prostitute that was cut up was his property or whatever she's like this isn't fair that's not justice and he is very unconcerned with that he's like no we just need to to get things back under control here and if I have a bunch of you know, bounty hunters coming in, things are going to get out of control. Very interesting. But there's two other, there's two other kind of very American loves and themes that this, I think the film addresses. So we've got violence, which we love as Americans. Um, then there's also uh, alcohol and sex. Those are kind of like our three favorite things. And this addresses all of them. So what do you think, do you have anything in particular to say about the way sex is portrayed in the film or maybe how different characters view it or the statement that the film might be making in regards to that or anything like that. Uh, Well, I mean, the main thing that I think that the film is, 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 is doing or portraying in regard to sex is very similar to what they're doing with violence, which is it's portrayed in a very, you know, unglamorous, uh, earthy, for lack of a better term, sort of a way, you know, it's, it's, it's also like with the violence, it is not uh, sanitized, uh, stylized Hollywood, you know, when it's actually depicted or when characters are talking about it, it's, it's done in a very un, unromanticized way. But uh, other than that, I don't know. What, what's your take? Well, I mean, it's very transactionary. Obviously, you're dealing with prostitution, right? Which are the females in the film, other than one very quick part where you meet uh, Ned's wife, who's Native American, um, very, very quickly, because she's going to take care of Will Money's kids. She does not have a, a big part in the film. But other than, other than her, everyone is a prostitute. That's a female in the film, uh, I think, without exception. And the that obviously doesn't include Will Money's wife, who you only see in writing in the epilogue or or prologue or when he's referencing her, but you never see it. There's not a character that plays a part. So you have sort of the transactionary nature of it on one aspect, other than one little glimpse of it. There's there's a scene where or a series of scenes when the the bounty hunters arrive, when Ned, Will, Money, and the Schofield kid arrive, they start to take advances on the money, at least Ned and the Schofield kid do, by sleeping with the prostitutes. You know, 
So I think Ned offers says, Hey, there's, there's, they're willing to, you know, sleep with us. If, you know, you know, would take us some advances on the money for, for whatever. And the only one who kind of abstains from it, if I recall correctly, is will money. He says, no, he, he just, he can't sort of defile his oath to his, his wife who he loved. Uh, probably the only person he ever loved. He can't do that. He can't bring himself to do that. He's uninterested with it. The only thing he's interested in is getting this job done, getting these cowboys and getting out of town, getting back to his, his two children and getting the reward money. Uh, that's sort of his motivation is, is that. So he's very, other than this one scene, there is a scene where the prostitute who has been cut in the face, who kind of is the reason that this all started, she has a, a really touching scene with where it's just the two of them. It's just Will Money and, and the prostitute. And she's telling him how they're taking advances on the money by sleeping with the prostitutes. And he doesn't seem to care much. But she kind of offers herself to him in a way. And she's like, you know, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be like for money or anything, just if you want to. You know, she's like, I know I'm ugly because and she's actually a very pretty woman, but she does have the scar on her face. She's like, I know nobody wants to sleep with somebody who's cut up or something like this. Um, and he says, no, that's not the reason, you know, I don't want to sleep with you. Uh, you know, I, it's not you, you know, anything to do with you. You know, it's to do with me. And I think that it's what it's kind of trying to drive at is the one kind of redeeming characteristic of Will money is his loyalty and the memory of his wife. I think that's a big, big part of the film, especially considering you never meet that character of his wife, but sort of his dedication to his family, which is his wife who has passed away and his children who he's trying to get this reward money for to give them a better life trumps everything else. And it drives him into picking up this past that he has long since been cured of and tried to avoid being this terrible person. But in a way it's his wife and the memory of her that gets him out of that life, but also which plunges him back into it and his abstinence from, you know, sleeping with the prostitute or, or taking advances on the money or whatever is kind of one of his endearing qualities. And it kind of does show that the one, the one of the best things about him is his loyalty. You know, he's loyalty, his loyalty to Ned, obviously as a friend, but more so the loyalty to his family and to his, to his wife. So I, I think that it's getting somewhere with that. I think it's used, sex is kind of used as a mechanism to show juxtaposed to his loyalty the fact that he won't engage in it and that the others will and they're not bad guys you know they're not you know ned or, or the schofield kid you definitely couldn't characterize characterize them as the bad guy but they are sleeping with the prostitutes and taking advances on the money in that way where he refuses to do so though he is regarded as the most vicious of the three yeah that's interesting and uh even ned right is is getting uh freebies as advances and his wife is still alive we met her uh, near the beginning of the film so yeah that makes him you know 
he he's a better person when it comes to killing people, but he's he's not he's not the better man when it comes to loyalty to his wife. And he's he's the only character who regards the the whores as anything other than property. Like he in that scene, very I, which is very deliberate. It's very touching scene. And there is kind of almost some romantic friction between the two. Uh, you can tell that she kind of views him in sort of a heroic fashion because he's there to kind of avenge the fact that she was cut up and there was no justice and stuff like that. So I do feel like she feels like almost like a responsibility to offer herself to him or uh, some sort of attraction there. Like here's this strong man who has come to, you know, fight for my honor. But the, the reality is that that's not the case, right? The reality is that he is there because of his, sort of familial obligations and though there's a i think a temptation there on his his part he does refuse it and uh, they wouldn't include that little scene i don't think uh, unless they were trying to make a, a very deliberate point about his character arc and sort of the temptation that sex has uh for the other characters that they all fall victim to and in fact Again, it's part of what starts this whole story off is like a sexual joke or, or episode. And the you know, fact that I guess some of the, the, the protagonists of the film are the prostitutes themselves, you know, because they're they're trying to get their justice. And they're, the film makes no bones about how brutal their life is and how terrible that position in life to be, you know, a prostitute is not a glamorous thing. You know, so it's it's very interesting, and that's I though it's a smaller part than the violence. The violence, I think, is the main theme, as we talked about earlier. I do think that it's in there for a reason. Some of these, you know, sexual themes or or very small scenes in the movie. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Peoples is obviously a, a very good writer, um, unlike a lot of the hacks or most of the hacks that are running things today. So, you know, you watch a lot of recently done uh, films and TV shows and there's things that'll be inserted in there and you're like, I don't even know, like things that are set up and never paid off and whatever. And and not not even done in like a subversive sort of like a, I meant to do that kind of way. But like you could just tell like, oh, yeah, the screenwriter forgot they set this thing up earlier uh, in the first act and, and they and they never paid it off or whatever. But, you know, with somebody like Peoples, like he obviously knows his craft right and so i you know i think you're right that like there's there's no there's no things uh that are that are accidental or random as far as, as scenes and dialogue and all that sort i of think thing. it's just meant meant to show the um re- kind of like the rewarding characteristic is his like faithfulness i said what i would say y- yeah yeah and and well and that's one of the very few things that makes him a sympathetic character in the whole movie, you know, cause he's, he's pretty unlikable in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, he's, he's occasionally uh, funny, you know, in, in like his, his wry sense of humor, dry sense of humor, but um, you know, he, like he's, he's fallen off his horse. He's, he's grumpy, you know, he's, he's sick uh, for a while there. Like it, it, there's not, he's not super likable in the conventional sense. Right. But that's, that's one of the things about him though, that does 
make him sympathetic is his loyalty to his wife, which he also shows not just by, you know, abstaining from the prostitutes, but he also also shows loyalty to his wife for most of the movie by abstaining from alcohol, which again, you know, his compatriots are are having drinks and whatever, and he's not. And even when he's you know, ill, of course, back then, one of the few things that people would do when they got a fever or whatever is, is drink liquor. Um, and he, he stays away from it. And so he never breaks his, his abstinence from sex, although he finally does break his abstinence from booze. Yeah. It's when he learns that, that Ned has been killed and put up in front of the saloon. One of the prostitutes comes to tell him that. And, um, and give him the money for killing the Cowboys. And that's when he's kind of so enraged, though he's quietly enraged, he starts to take, he takes the alcohol and he starts to drink it. And you can see that switch flicking. Those wheels start to turn where he's going he, he starts to turn back into that person that, you know, he, he claims his wife had cured him of being, you know, so the alcohol is very much a switch. I think. Uh, you see his character change. He becomes very different after he takes that drink of alcohol. He becomes a different character. Now, I think the backbone of the character is the same in certain aspects, but it enables him to become the old Will Money. And he, in fact, says it when he walks in again in this epic last scene we've talked about several times. Uh, he says, yeah, I'm, I'm Will Money. I'm the guy who's killed women and children, and I'm here to kill you, little Bill. He's very unapologetic after he starts to drink the alcohol of the things that he's done in the past, where he's very regretful and kind of running from his past and the rest of the film. He, whenever he talks about his past, he talks about it with a very much of a self-hatred and a self-loathing. But after he drinks the alcohol... He almost kind of embraces it, needfully so, because he's got to go do a very, you know, he's got to go kill a bunch of people in this saloon. Um, but that is what enables him to do it. And I think that that is also an interesting kind of theme there, even though it's lightly touched upon. Yeah, yeah, it does, you know, kind of come up throughout the film. Like every time he, you know, very, very noticeably uh, declines any booze. And, yeah, just uh, th- there's there's just so much um so much nuance and subtlety and ambiguity uh throughout, you know, all aspects of this film in, in in a way that you just almost never in films and things made in the last 5-6 years see that degree yeah. of of subtlety. Everything is like this very, you know, ham-fisted on the nose you know, blatant, here's the good guys and here's the bad guys. And of course, you know, the bad guys are always uh, evil white straight men or whatever. Um, you know, well, the alcohol it, too, that the alcohol is what he gives the Schofield kid after the Schofield kid kills the second cowboy. Um, and has this kind of awakening that we talk about of what violence really is and doesn't want to see it anymore. Will gives him the liquor, right? And that's how he kind of deals with it is he starts drinking the alcohol in that scene and uh, he's taking big swigs out of this bottle and he's describing, he's like, you know, I, I killed him and one minute he's alive and one minute he's not. And then Will Money says, that's the thing about killing a man. You take away all he's got and all he's ever going to have another great line uh, about the finality 
of violence and the truth of violence. And the only thing that can help the Schofield kid kind of medicate himself through this thing that he's just done and embrace this kind of new person he's become after being someone who's now killed somebody is the alcohol. And I don't think it's an accident that the town that all this takes place in is called Big Whiskey either. Yeah. Um, I think that that, you know, they could have named it anything. I mean, this sounds like a very believable name. Maybe there even was a town called that. I don't know. But the, it's just, I, th- I think that's interesting. And again, going back to the writing prowess, you know, of somebody like Peoples, uh, none of this, I don't think is by accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One other uh, thing that I, I wanted to mention too, that, you know, again, is is such skillful subversion of, of expectations and, and illustrating this moral ambiguity and the whole theme of, you know, deserves got nothing to do with it. It is the the character of Davy, the kind of younger of the two cowboys that are, you know, have the bounty on them. Uh, Davy is portrayed very sympathetically. I mean, oh yeah. He he not yeah. only did he not hurt the prostitute, like he he was just there with his buddy, you know, banging a different prostitute when when the 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 opening incident happens. But I I think he might have even sort of tried to at least somewhat restrain uh, the other cowboy, the one who was was cutting up the prostitute. Um, and he was much more like apologetic almost. And yeah, he was, he, he was, he was he, a victim of circumstance for sure. Yeah. 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 And, and um, you know, he brought in extra ponies of his own to give to the prostitute, not, not to the, uh, to the, the guy running the, the whorehouse, you know, he, he brought in extra ponies specifically to give to her. Like he was actually trying, you know, of course um, you know, the, the kind of head prostitute, Alice, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Alice. I couldn't remember remember the character's name. Uh yeah, she she, you know, just just stays pissed off and whatever, as if it's, you know, just a token gesture. But, you know, it seems like he was genuinely with what he had, he was trying to do some sort of justice, you know, and, and directly right. compensate the woman, even though he's not the one that who hurt her. He's not the one who cut it up, cut her up. And, you know, the bounty goes on him, even though as well as the guy who actually did it. Um, and you know, he ends up being the first one getting killed is the guy who's maybe in a way, one of the most innocent characters in the movie, really. Yeah. We, we never see Davy. Um, I don't think he ever hurts anybody in the movie. He, he never kills anybody and he dies probably other than Ned, the worst death in the film. Yeah. You know, he, he dies after suffering with a gut shot, you know, when he's screaming and thirsty and whatever. And again, and it's, it's so just childlike and like, it's almost like a child crying when he's dying. Like, like yeah. it's, he's so scared and it's very, it's kind of a, like a, you know, no pun intended, a gut wrenching scene where he's like the, every character on the screen is feels terrible for him, you know? And they all realize kind of like, this is ugly. You know, what, what's happening to this guy is ugly. And it, it, again, it's, it's the the arbitrary nature of violence. You know, it's that he's sort of collateral damage, isn't he? In a way. And, and that, that is interesting. Like it's because it's such a small part. I don't think you, it's, it's easy to overlook how kind of powerful the innocence of that character is. It's a great point. Yeah. Well, you know, great movies like this that 
you can rewatch, you know, over and over and over every few years. And one of the things that makes a movie like that is, is all the little details, right? Where that, that like every, every minor character is perfectly cast and is like nailing the role. Like it's, it's not just, you know, Clint Eastwood, Gene Hackman, Morgan Freeman, you know, all these, all these great uh, actors and actresses that, that are in the bigger roles, but even, you know, these little side characters like, like this guy or, or the Schofield kid is a little bit, a little bit, you know, bigger of a character, but you know, they're all just absolutely perfect. And all these little details that, that you, you notice uh, upon subsequent viewings or, you know, movies like this that I rewatch every, every now and then pretty regularly. It also, things hit you differently because you're at different points of your life, right? The old, uh, you know, you can't stick your foot in the same river kind of thing, right? I mean, me watching Unforgiven as a guy who's about to turn 41 in uh, two weeks from tomorrow, I am a different person than me watching Unforgiven, you know, when I was in my 20s or me watching Unforgiven, you know, for the first time uh, when I was like 12 or something. So... Yeah, th- th- this is one of those one of those movies uh, to me, and you know, I'm sure to you as well. Where when you rewatch it, depending on on where you're at in your life and what you're going through, you certain things stand out to you that didn't stand out the last time you watched it, and and other things that maybe you noticed, um, you interpret a little bit differently. And that's what you know, that's what great great movies are all about. Unlike again, I, I know I sound like a a cranky old man, broken record, uh, saying you know how much movies of today mostly are shit, but they really are like, it's amazing. You know? Yeah. Did they make bad movies in, in the, to me, like the ultimate era of film, people will often say, Oh, it's the seventies, new Hollywood. To me, it's like, that was the beginning of it. To me, the, the best era of Hollywood was from the seventies through into at least the early oddies. But, you know, for that period of like three to four decades there that was kicked off by the new Hollywood. But, um, you know, yeah, they, they, they made plenty of shit movies, but the percentage of movies that were at least pretty good and had redeeming qualities. And then the percentage of movies that were just great, timeless, you know, classics and masterpieces was so much higher back then. I mean, just think about like how, even just the nineties, like how many just great movies that you can watch today and they're just as good and they're not, uh, dated and whatever. Whereas like, who's going to be watching, who's, who's going to be watching Captain Marvel in the year 2050. And if you do, who's yeah. going to like it and, and you know, how is it going to age or is it going to seem like horribly dated? You're like, you know, you, you watch Captain Marvel in 2050 and you're like, Oh yeah, that was when every movie had to be an intersectional feminist propaganda performance art, you know, whereas, you know, you watch something like this, you watch something like, uh, I don't know, Gladiator. I mean, just, you know, or, or even very different movies like American Psycho. Like there were just, you know, usual suspects, you know. I was listening to Tim Dillon the other day and he said, there's like, there's only two in his usual hilarious way. He's like, there's only two films you can make right now and make any money. He's like, you can make some uh, crazy woke film, you know what I mean? That's, you know, trying to push all these boundaries and push all these buttons, or you can make a superhero film. (laughs) <laughs> like those are the only two you're allowed to make right now. Or you can blend so, them together and make a, make a superhero right. film that has all the wokeism in it, you know, best of both worlds. It's, it's hilarious, but it's, it's true. Like I, the, the absurdity of it is what's so funny, but 
Uh, and it's so transparently the case, you know, but just why things were better in the past. Uh, I think it a hundred percent has to do with, uh, freedom as, as corny as cliche as that, that might sound is you're no longer free to say or do so many things that we had the privilege of being able to do in the nineties and the early two thousands and, and people had to do in the late eighties and, and all these things, the, and this is something that Carpenter's talked about the freedom that they had in the eighties with the, the horror genre, they could, he's like, we could pretty much do anything we wanted. And no, we were kind of beyond question. So, you know, you could do the thing remake and make it incredible. You could do, um, you know, all these other films that, that he made that were, were incredible. You could do escape from New York. You know, you could do Unforgiven. You could do all this stuff. You just, you simply can't do it right now because of the constraints that contemporary society has put on free speech. Um, you would be unpersoned, unemployable, hated, hounded, protested against. I mean, it would be, you know, a freeze out to do any of these, kind of take any of these liberties and only with like freedom of expression and freedom of speech are you going to get good quality art now i would argue you know I, i'm an anarchist i have sensibilities and a lot of my sensibilities are kind of a bit i don't know i, I don't want to say a bit to the right some of them are to the right some of them are to the left but great art typically does come from the left side of the spectrum in my opinion if you look at things historically that being said, I also think right now the left end of the spectrum is kind of killing <laughs> great art and uh, putting the handcuffs on it. So I think that like while you can attribute some of some of the great great art in the past, in fact, the, probably the majority of the great art in the past towards people with left leaning sensibilities, I the the burden is certainly on them right now as far as the people who are stopping it and handcuffing it and watering it down and making it suck. So you do see kind of this cultural reversal where when we were growing up and when we were first becoming aware of like art and film and things like this, I think it was the left leaning sensibilities that were at the forefront of creating it where now it almost seems like things are kind of flipping where it's maybe the people with, the more traditional views or, or more right-leaning sensibilities that are craving kind of this freedom through of expression and freedom of speech and things like this. Uh, and the left has taken a more totalitarian stance on it. Again, this is, there's a lot of nuance there. I'm speaking in these extreme black and white generalities, uh, which aren't always the case as we both know, but if you are going to kind of encapsulate it, and distill it into some some generalities. That's kind of how I see the past versus the modern film industry and, and art industry, you know, art in general, you know, in society. And if you read uh, one of the interesting things I had been reading, I took a break from it, but I'm going to start again. I've been reading some Will Durant histories, uh, which is, Will Duran, if you don't know, him and his wife 
wrote basically a history of everything uh, up until uh, I want to say it's post. I might be a World War One era. I can't remember, but there's just so much history that they covered together, and it's a reference that I know Dan Carlin uses a lot. He uses a lot of Will Durant historical writings, and whenever he's writing history, he distills it down into areas of society instead of instead of doing it chronologically so there's family there's warfare or you know the there's political discourse and then there's art and culture like that's one of the things he he talks about throughout whatever period of history he's talking about like that roman christ is what i'm starting to read now uh, which is about those those periods in history and if you look at, if you distill, if you forget the politics and all that, and you just look at the art itself, art and culture, and what forces in society are dominating it, changing it, I think it is very easy to see that what I would say the left side of the spectrum in society today is kind of killing art. And we desperately need a return to one of their more redeeming qualities back when we were growing up, which is, you know, the fostering and health of art they were kind of responsible for. So I would love to see from, from the left leaning people, a return to those kind of sensibilities of things that they used to cherish. They've kind of turned against. Yeah, I would agree with all that. And um, just sort of a, a little bit of a sneak preview uh, for you and to, to people who listen to this um, once I publish it as an episode um, that ties into a, a lot of what you were just saying is, you know, when you look at, if I'm right, that like the, the greatest era of American film as an art form runs from like, you know, late sixties, early seventies, kind of the beginning of new Hollywood through to the, the Audis. And then the 2010s is when it, you know, gradually starts to turn to shit and, Really, from the Trump era forward is when it just becomes totalitarian propaganda, where like literally every movie has to be, you know, a, a political propaganda piece of wokeism. Um, if I'm right that 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 stretch of like roughly 40 years is the best American film has ever been overall. Again, most movies are shit, just like most books that are published every year are shit, but the percentage was higher of good stuff. Well, you know, looking at it historically, I can I can tell you why. American films were so boring um, from the 1930s until the late 60s. And it's because of something called the Hayes Code, which was the kind of nickname for the the motion picture production code that was in place from the 30s until like the mid 60s. And it was very, very rigid and like micromanaged uh, writers and directors on what they were allowed to portray and how they were allowed to portray it. I mean, right down to even details in some cases where it's like, you know, if a, if a crime is committed during the film, it has to be solved and resolved by the end of the film or, yeah. um, you know, a couple cannot be shown together in a bedroom. Um, even if they're, you know, depicted as married and they're clothed or, you know, just little things like that. It's just, you know, and, and of course like no, um, you know, you're not allowed to show any any uh, interracial uh, scenes or whatever. You know, interracial it was very romance. Very puritanical. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, and it was a straitjacket, and that's why. You know, yeah. There's a few great movies that were made in the 40s and 50s, but most movies from the 40s and 50s are just boring as hell. They're formulaic and boring as hell. 
And then all of a sudden that stuff got removed in like the late sixties. And guess what? All of a sudden you had all the great, you know, auteur filmmakers coming into their own of, you know, uh, Coppola and and Milius and, you know, all the other great uh, new Hollywood, uh, Scorsese, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Kubrick. And then I I would argue, and this is what I'm going to be covering in, in this uh, solo episode that I'm still working on notes for. Uh, I characterize the Hollywood regime that's been in place for like the last, you know, six, seven, eight years, whatever. I, I call it the new Hayes Code. And, you know, the new Hayes Code is like, you know, no female uh, character can ever be bested by a male character at anything. All all white male characters must be either stupid or uh, incompetent or they must be evil or both. Um, things like that, right? No, no female protagonist can ever learn any lessons or anything valuable from a male character or or mentor, right? Um, all all these sorts of things. Um, yeah, it's pure. It was puritanical then, and it, it's now puritanical now for the yeah. new, the new religious zealous crowd. And the, it's what we talked about this before the show. We were talking a little bit about it. Uh, we weren't recording or anything, but we were talking about this very thing. If you remember about like the sort of puritanism in art and how it is making things today literally unwatchable, unreadable, unrelatable. No one really likes it. People just have to pretend to like it for political purposes, not for artistic purposes. Um, And it really has been uh, taken hostage by, by politics and this sort of new, what we would both say is a fundamentalist religion of wokeism, um, just the way it was before under the initial Hayes Code, kind of ruined by its sort of fundamentalist beliefs. And you know, and I, this is coming from somebody who's deeply religious. You know, I you know very much have a belief in God, and we have discussed that before. Though it might be, there's definitely aspects of things that I would say for me are traditional and I view in a different little bit of abstraction, but I definitely see that. I see that, that you know, sort of like puritanism had kind of like ruined things previously, but I view it the exact same way now. I mean, I feel like I could spot it from a mile away and uh, it is interesting that parallel. And the only hope is like, when is it not going to stink again? You know? Yeah, exactly. When when is the new Hayes Code going to be thrown out so that you can have actual creativity again? Because you can't, and it's the same thing. You know, same thing happened with with comic books in a way too, where there was the Comics Code Authority for a long time, and um, you know, yeah, there were some good comics made or whatever, but they suddenly started getting really creative when. Uh, comic books started being published without the Comics Code Authority, which was sort of like the Hayes Code uh, for comic books. And so you you had all these great, you know, very creative, very, in some ways, you know, deconstructionist and, and that sort of thing, but in a good way, uh, comic books that were published. And then now, I, I think comic books, from what I can tell, and I, I was a big comic book fan in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, when I was when I was a kid, yeah. uh, I didn't I didn't stick with it very much once I got to be like in high school, but um, you know, from what I understand and from some of the people I follow who are into comic books, that comic, the comic book industry got taken over by wokeism even a little bit earlier than, than film and television. 
but similar sort of a deal. So now, uh, at least at you know most of the big comic book companies, it's it's very similar. New Hayes Code uh, to Hollywood, where you know everything has to have wokeism shoehorned into it, and everything's got to be intersectional and whatever. And you know any industry, whether it's it's film, comic books, whatever, any industry that's ultimately based on creativity is going to turn to shit as soon as you start putting a straitjacket on that industry and, and the people in it, you know, um, like there, not a lot of great art comes out of, out of totalitarian societies and, you know, and, and, or the and, greatest of art, which is when it's being rebelled against, you know, right. like that's, yeah, that's the true. only time it, the only time it is good is when it's a reflection of the, the travesty that, that, it, that regime is embracing and often too late. You know, it's never, it's typically never loved in its own time. Uh, I think uh, like a lot of people will ask me, you know, what's the greatest, what's the best of like Ram's work or whatever, because, you know, I've, I've read a lot of it, uh, her stuff. And the, the book I always tell people to start with is um, We the Living, you know, which is flirts with some of these concepts about like, you know, a totalitarian regime and, you know, love or art within a totalitarian regime and, and the difficulties within there, which obviously Rand had a very big connection with. Uh, but a lot of times I think you're trying to say, like, what's interesting here? If everything that we're making is just a formula, like you like you perfectly described with, with the new Hays Code description that, you know, this character has to be X, Y, Z, and this character has to be X, Y, Z. You already know the story when you sit down. You already know who, what character is going to be good and what character is going to be bad. You already know who's going to learn the lesson and who isn't. You already know who's going to be magically great at everything and have, there's nothing more, I mean, like you can look at the Ray character from Star Wars and there's like, something so irredeemable about a character with no weakness, you know, or no, that they're just so machine-like and unlikable, despite how good the performance may or may not be from, from the actor or actress. If there's nothing there to learn, if there's no negativity within the character, if there's no duality, like there is an unforgiven with the characters there, then they're uninteresting. You know, I don't want to watch a film about a bunch of robots. Like, I want to get right down to the human experience. And when you remove that and you make all this stuff so formulaic, it's just garbage. And it's only the art that's going to rebel against that, like, dramatically, that's going to be good when you look back and say, hey, what's good from the 2020s? You know, what's good from the 2000, you know, teens? It's going to be the stuff that wasn't liked at the time that was seen as toxic or whatever as the time at the time, because it's kind of rebelling against that. It's rebelling against that sort of Hayes code esque formula. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the same as like the original, like earliest rock and roll in the fifties, like the, the early kind of like rockabilly stuff. It was hated by the establishment and the authority figures and institutions. It was hated and demonized and the same thing when 
you know, I, I would describe it as sort of like rock and roll kind of rediscovering its, its attitude, uh, with the original, you know, first, uh, punk rock bands in the seventies where they were, you know, by that point, like kind of hippie, hippie type rock had taken over the rock music genre, right? Like Steely Dan or whatever. And then. Yeah in comes sex pistols, Ramones and all those sort of guys. And they're like, no, 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 we're, we're, we're in a way throwing it back to the fifties. It's like the songs are going to be right. two, two, three minutes max, um, you know, verse, chorus, verse, maybe not even a guitar solo, but if we do, it's going to be real short and simple. Yep. And uh, you know, three chords. And it's, it's funny, the relationship and the love that uh, most people who play the guitar, we both play the guitar, but our people who love rock and roll and stuff like this, the people who love punk rock or grew up with punk rock uh, or have an appreciation for punk rock very frequently also love rockabilly. And like, yep. it's very close to relate. There's this uh, YouTuber uh, I watch who he's got a channel called a uh, death ray cat. He's like a guitar. He has like a punk rock band. I think he's British or something, but uh, it's, it's not really punk rock. It's more, it's like neo rockabilly kind of stuff. And he does a lot of like old rockabilly tunes, but he's also a lover of punk rock. And it like it's very there's this merging of those genres and even surf rock to a point, which is sort of what I love, which is kind of, you know, rockabilly's respectable younger brother. But um it's like those are very like similar like loved genres where it's kind of away from the corporate the very corporate aspects of rock and roll and the very formulaic kind of establishment version of music you know which is what a lot of these people who think they're the counterculture now and they're rebelling and resisting against something are really just representatives of the mainstream corporate establishment narrative you're not the counterculture anymore you know the counterculture is these people who want to have who are rebelling against all this you know rubber stamp garbage that you kind of see now coming out yeah, I mean it's it's so nauseating uh to you know see and hear people who all of their opinions line up perfectly with CNN, the CIA, Disney, Wall Street, the Pentagon, like you name it, and they label themselves the, the resistance. They label themselves the resistance. Like, yes, yeah. everything I say and claim to believe lines up perfectly with all of the most powerful uh, institutions in our system and i'm i'm a badass rebel and it and it's particularly disgusting to see how many people uh individuals who who used to be actually rebellious have become establishment hacks either because of trump derangement syndrome or because of covid derangement sin- syndrome or both so like what wasn't like a uh, 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 jello biafra basically propagandizing in favor of getting your getting your pfizer vax or something like that i mean it's just it is so disgusting. Like, oh, yeah, that's real punk rock here. Do what the government and big farm are telling you to do. That's how to be a badass punk rocker. Yeah, it's very, you know, it's all about sides. It's all about, I think, once you are, have a certain level of influence and, and audience that for the, for the most part, people just become sort of slaves to that. And they're afraid of losing it. And the most most great stuff is great in the beginning, right? Until it gets big. Uh, and then it kind of gets hijacked and ruined. Uh, and that can include some of these personalities and some of these figures. Yeah. But and it's very interesting, like all, all where we are sort of in this, like, you know, culture 
Cold War uh, is very interesting. I'm excited to see kind of where it goes. I, I have a feeling things are going to start getting better. I do. I, I think I'm an optimist in that regard, especially as far as culture and art go. Uh, I think people are tired of it. I think people have had it with the formula. They see the formula doesn't work. They see the formula is insincere. They see that the formula is a lie and that it's not true. And they can see some of the evil people and evil forces that are wielding the formula and pushing the formula. And they're like, you know, maybe I don't like this. Maybe I am okay. Maybe I don't want to look at what one person is wearing, what color their hair is, and where their piercings are, and automatically know every single political and philosophical position this person's going to hold. I don't even need to have a conversation with them because I already know they're going to 100% agree with this other person who looks exactly like them that is on this side of the bar. Um, there's, <laughs> I think there is a desire to return to this society where we have some nuance and we have some ambiguity and we have some true differences instead of these, this very sort of simple, I'm on this team, you're on that team. I, I think it was, I don't know if it was Dave Smith or who it was, but somebody was talking about a Noam Chomsky quote where, where they said the best way to control society is to, to move move the goalposts of allowable opinion as close together as possible, and then encourage super lively debate uh, among those two two factions. You know, make make the <laughs> make the outs make the box so small, and then encourage very lively debate. So you know, it's either this way or this way or this way or this way, and there's no there's no room for thinking outside of the box or, or nuanced opinions. Uh, and I definitely think that that's where we're at now. And I think there is a rebellion, kind of a grassroots rebellion against it, especially artistically. I think you see a lot of people doing their own upstarts. You see a lot of people kind of taking art into their own hands. And I think it's going to change. It might take a while, but I think the pendulum is ready to kind of drop back. Hopefully, as we discussed earlier before we started the show, hopefully to a more reasonable place and that it doesn't swing back violently in the wrong direction too hard or in the opposite direction and the wrong way too hard uh, where now you have a whole nother set of problems to worry about that could be terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't want all of the um, hysterical progressives who actually think we're living in handmaid's tale uh, to be right. <laughs> you know, exactly. Uh, and that's, that's how we, I think how we phrased it before the show when we were talking is like, I don't want this invisible enemy to become real. Because, because the the people who have been kind of eating it for the last ten years become so incensed when the pendulum does start to swing the other way that they now cannot see uh, what's reasonable. So, I think we'll, I think we'll be okay. I, I tend I want to believe we'll be okay at least at least for a while. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that the uh, Amazon's. Rings of wokeness might be, you know, like the 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 high tide in the sense of like the biggest, most expensive uh, wokeista project that falls the flattest. It, it might be to this whole thing what Heaven's Gate was to the New Hollywood era, you know, where it's like right. it's 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 the the jumping the shark, uh, super expensive disaster that kind of is the end of an era. So I, I hope I'm right. Well, um, yeah, man, 
got off on a on a bit of a rabbit hole but um anything else uh uh on unforgiven other than what how many stars would you give it out of i don't know out of 37 stars how many would you give it i'll give it 37 i'll give it the top rating of whatever whatever uh i'll give it uh three liquor bottles four prostitutes um uh whatever i'll give the joe bob briggs (laughs) that was good um it's i love it for all the traditional reasons i love westerns i love the setting i love kind of like the romance of the era even though a lot of it is deconstructed in the film i still love it just as beauchamp still loved it in the end he still loved seeing will money become that person at the end he had that smile on his face when he was peeking around the corner as will money rode out of town saying that he was going to kill anyone who came after him and if anybody harmed any of the prostitutes again he'd come back and kill the whole town and burn the town down and he had that smile beauchamp had that smile on the face that the audience had like finally we get our traditional hero which had been deconstructed for the rest of the film before that. Uh, and that's how I feel about it. I love it for all the traditional reasons I love a Western, just like Beauchamp. But I also, it holds a special place in my heart for all the reasons that it disconstructs that narrative, you know, and, and it gets kind of meta and looks at Westerns themselves. So to me, this is the pinnacle of a great Western and, and probably one of the best. Yeah, I would agree with all that. I'd, I'd give it uh you know, six bullets in the cylinder out of six or whatever we're going with. <laughs> and um, this is, this is one of those things where, you know, I take issue with so much of the deconstructionism lately because it's just this, this hate filled nihilistic fundamentalist crazy. I don't even know how to describe it. Like I was saying before, where, where it seems like these people typically have contempt for the genres and the characters they're deconstructing. Um, whereas Unforgiven to me is like one of one of the top examples of deconstruction done right and done well and done in a way that, like you were saying, you, you still can appreciate what it is they're deconstructing. And I don't know, um, you know, there, there's there's very few other films I can think of that that deconstruct a genre this well without, you know, just shitting on it and, you know. Big Trouble in Little China comes to mind where it's it's kind of deconstructionist uh, of, yeah. of sort of the sci-fi action kind of kind of genre and um, Cabin in the Woods, you know, good, good deconstruction of, of oh, horror yeah. movies horror films, and, yeah. and those and any others I might think of. They're all ones where you can tell that the people who made them love the genre they're deconstructing. They're not doing it out of out of malice. They're not doing it for some sort of political agenda. They're 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 doing it, you know, well, to, the to tell an interesting story. Are, are- the Coen brothers films are great about this too. Like they're all, whether it's their comedy, like raising Arizona or their, their own sort of take on the modern Western with no country for old men, which is a great book. It's probably one of my favorite books by Cormac McCarthy. who's probably one of my favorite authors. Uh, but they're, and they have a, they have a few films that whether it's like Barton thinker or whatever, that could be classified as sort of gangster esque or whatever that are very sort of, deconstructions of those kind of things as well so i'd love to do a, a coen brothers film with you one time too because i love all their movies so maybe we'll shoot to do one of those in the future one day yeah wasn't uh buster scruggs wasn't that coen brothers yeah 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 i i, I really liked i really liked that one yeah uh, anyway 
Yeah, I've I've got I've got mixed feelings about old No Country for Old Men, but um, I guess that's a that's a debate for another time. And I, I have not read the book, so so maybe I would I would like it better if I read the book, or I would like the book better. But uh, that's yeah, interesting anyway. that you've got it. It uh, I think it won. I think it won Best Picture over There Will Be Blood, which is brilliant too. And they're two of my favorite movies. And uh, I th- I think they were the same year. I think what well, was Paul Thomas Anderson? I think that was There Will Be Blood. And then the Coen brothers doing No Country for Old Men. But I'd say the the book is a little bit, probably a little bit better. Uh, but I think they did, they kind of brought their own vision to it. But it's it's pretty close. Uh, but I love it. I'd be interested to hear why you have mixed thoughts on it. So maybe, maybe we could do that. Okay. Yeah. And I'd have to, I haven't watched it in a long, long time. So maybe I'd have, I'd have different thoughts on it now. Um, but, uh, also I, I just have to ask, have you seen old Henry? No. Okay. As soon as you get a chance, look up and watch the film old Henry. Uh, it it is, I think it came out this year or maybe late last year. And it is one of the best movies I've seen in the last few years. And uh, it actually immediately got on my list of one of my favorite Westerns of all time and um, okay. got, got very little attention. As you were saying, like the good stuff now is the stuff that's under the radar. That's, yeah, that's where you find the good yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Just, just like it is, you know, with music, the good stuff is the, the indie stuff. The good stuff is the stuff that doesn't get a lot of establishment attention and yeah, old Henry, it stars. Oh man, I always forget the actor's name. The the guy who was in Buster Scruggs and No Country. Oh, sorry, No Country for Old Men. Uh, oh, brother, where art thou? Uh, that actor with kind of the weird looking face, but he's a great actor. Uh, I know who you're talking about. He's also, it's oh man, he's in uh, what's the bowling movie? That's funny. He's in that movie. Yeah. Jeez. Anyway, he, he's a. Uh, and I always forget his name, but it, he, he, I love him. He's he's a great actor, but I always forget his name. Um. Anyway. I heard, um, I heard he's like a really strong personality to work with. Tim Blake Nelson. That's, I knew it was Tim a, Blake Nelson. Tim Blake Nelson. Yeah. I, I knew it was a three, you know, a three name, first, middle, last name guy. Um, and I, I can never remember his name. And I was like that guy. Oh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. He was Buster Scruggs, right? Yeah. He Buster Scruggs? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Old, old Henry. Uh, he's the star of it, and it is a really cool, uh, different kind of a Western. And I, I think you'll definitely enjoy That's it. how I feel about Dead Man, too. I think uh, Dead Man is incredible. That That's uh, one I need to rewatch. That I haven't seen that in a long time. I remember liking it, but I don't remember too much else about it. I probably haven't seen it since it came out. Yeah, it was Jim Jarmusch film, uh, Black and White. Neil Young did the soundtrack. Johnny Depp. It's very, again, it's very a much more, I don't want to say realistic version of the West, but a much less glamorous, dark kind of version of that genre. It's a, it's referred to as like an acid, acid Western. I guess it's a very, very specific genre, um, but uh, very, very cool film. Very cool film. Yeah. I definitely need to rewatch that one. Cause I don't, again, I remember liking it, but I don't remember a whole lot. Of, you know, I remembered it was Johnny Depp and black and white, but other than that, I don't remember too much of it, but anyway, well, um, gee whiz, uh, I, I appreciate you taking all this time. And this was after what being up all night. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I was working all night, so uh, 
that's all right. I'm going to go, I think, take a nap. And then as you, as we've discussed before, I'm, I'm also going to school in my spare time. So I've got to get up and do some classwork too. And then I'll get right back to work tomorrow. So full schedule for me. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me and all that. Uh, been a while since we've actually spoken and, um, you know, I, I appreciate the opportunity to discuss, you know, one of the greatest films of all time with you that, that we're both fans of. So, uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for staying up early for me or whatever. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, I guess. Sure. And uh, yeah, we'll have to talk again before too long. Uh, not not let as much time go by and uh, you're going to take a nap. I'm going to eat lunch and I don't know, maybe go to the gym or something like that. We'll see. All right. Adios, man. Good talking with you.